Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hi, and welcome to the Top in Tech podcast from Global Council. My name is Conan Darcy. I am the Senior Practice Lead for Tech, Media and Telecoms at Global Council, and I'm your regular host on this podcast. As regular listeners will know, we use this time to explore what is going on with Europe's tech lash, what is driving it, what are the politics behind it, and what might it mean for companies in how they run their businesses. I'm delighted this week to bring back a regular podder, Max von Thun, who is based in our Brussels office and specializes in a number of different areas, including semiconductors and competition policy. Welcome, Max. And also a debutante at the uh, Top in Tech podcast, Franck Thomas. Franck uh, is an expert in the EU legislative process, uh, particularly focusing on uh, platform regulation as well as the telecom sector. So on the last pod, uh, we looked back at the end of the year to what had happened in UK and US tech policy. This month, which is obvious given that Max and Franck are both Brussels-based, we're going to switch back to the EU. We want to look ahead to what is coming down the train in six months' time. We want to discuss what we have, a very unique presidency. One of the big member states, France, has assumed the presidency of the European Council. And But at the same time that France will be doing this, they are going to be holding an election for the presidency in that country. This provides a whole load of different uh, dynamics, which we'll explore with Franck in particular, to understand how that will impact the EU's agenda in the coming months. Secondly, on recent pods, we've spoken a lot about content policy, social media, advertising, but we haven't touched too much yet on a different political hot potato in the tech clash, the so-called gig economy. Uber and other companies that have been in the crosshairs of regulators across Europe. The Commission published at the end of the last year legislative proposals for a platform workers directive. We'll explore both the Max and Franck how this will play out and how it might shape the market. So Max, let's start with the platform workers directive. It's a pretty dry sounding uh, title. Uh, but it's far from that in terms of the content. So can you just give listeners a quick overview of the Commission's proposals and help us understand what it is that the Commission is trying to achieve? Sure. So I think to start with the last part of your question first, um, in terms of what the Commission's trying to achieve, essentially this is you know, the Commission's official response to uh, you know, long-standing concerns about kind of employment rights and employment conditions uh, in the gig, gig economy that I'm sure a lot of listeners will be familiar with um, that have been going on for, for a number of years. And we've seen it through, you know, a number of major court cases across Europe, uh, you know, negative media headlines uh, and so on. And, and ultimately what these concerns come down to is that uh, sort of individual workers who gig economy platforms typically claim are, are self-employed and independent uh, are actually sort of more akin to employees uh, and, and are therefore through the kind of potential misclassification and employment status, not getting the rights that they uh, are entitled to. So this this proposal, the Platform Workers Directive, is, is an attempt to respond to that. Uh, I think in terms of the key features of the proposal, I highlight three in particular. Uh, the first and most important is what the Commission is calling a rebuttable presumption of employment. Uh, 
Uh, and this is the idea that if a particular kind of gig economy worker uh, meets a number of criteria that the commission has, has set out, uh, the commission says sort of two is the, the magic number, uh, that are basically seen as kind of determining whether a platform has control over that worker or not. So these are things like the extent to which the platform controls uh, the worker's pay, uh, the extent to which it sort of tells them how they need to deliver their work. You know, that could be things like uniforms uh, or, or so on. Uh, the extent to which the platform, you know, manages and rates that worker's performance uh, and so on. If, if a number of those criteria are met, then according to the commission's proposal, there would be this uh, sort of legal, legal rebuttable presumption of employment where that kind of individual would be assumed to be an employee, even if the platform is claiming uh, that they're actually self-employed. Uh, and it's rebuttable because it would leave open a mechanism whereby kind of platforms uh, or actually the kind of worker who's being kind of reclassified could, could challenge that uh, in a court of law. But the kind of the burden would be on the platform to prove that actually this is not an employee, this is, a, this is a freelancer. So that's kind of the biggest part of the proposal. It's the one that's attracted the most headlines and, and already the most backlash from, from kind of platforms who are concerned about having to, to recategorize sort of huge numbers of their, their staff. Um, in terms of the other, other two kind of areas to highlight, so there are a number of provisions around algorithmic transparency, uh, and this relates to uh, sort of concerns about uh, sort of decisions being made by gig economy apps on platforms affecting workers by algorithms and, and AI uh, that are currently not transparent enough. So the, the proposal um, sort of would give uh, workers kind of greater information on, on how those algorithms are operating and making decisions about workers, for example, how they're being allocated work, and it would give them rights to, for example, speak to a human at, at the kind of gig economy platform that employs them and sort of understand more about the decision and potentially challenge it. Um, and then the third area to highlight is sort of wider transparency requirements where gig economy platforms would have to provide data to the European Commission on, for example, you know, the number of workers they employ uh, across Europe, uh, the sort of employment status of those workers, uh, and so on. And this is really about kind of helping the EU understand uh, the nature and kind of evolution of the gig economy and help them help them monitor it. Um, and I think just in terms of sort of, again, what the commission is trying to achieve. So uh, I think the most important one, which I touched on, is this issue of misclassification. They want to ensure that people have the employment status that really kind of is appropriate uh, and are getting the rights that they deserve. But, you know, they're also, I think, ambitions to reduce a lot of the legal uncertainty that we've seen over the past few years because of this issue not being defined, leading to lots of legal, legal challenges. Um, and I think also there is an incentive here to potentially raise more, more tax revenue, given, uh, you know, typically the self-employed pay, pay less tax. So more people being classified as employees would also have that kind of benefit for, for government. Thanks, Max. I suppose uh, for, for me and for listeners to quite understand the impact that this would have, we sort of need to get a bit into the who. So is it just the Ubers of this world, the gig economy, the Deliveroo's, the, the companies that you see uh, in The Guardian regularly being criticized for their working practices? Or is it a little bit wider than that? Are there more conventional companies or other parts of the gig economy that we're less familiar with that would be affected by such proposals? So those companies are, are definitely in scope of this. Uh, and I think they are the ones that have really driven the kind of political pressure to act uh, in this area. But actually, again, if you look at the details of the proposal, 
uh, it casts a net that's quite a lot wider than, than those kind of those companies. Um, so ultimately, it's, you know, the commission is um, targeting what it calls kind of any digital labor platform. So that's kind of any work that's mediated via a website or an app. Uh, they're targeting kind of any anyone who can be considered a platform worker or even people performing platform work. So, so this is kind of quite a wide net indeed. Um, having said that, I think the kind of bulk of the proposal and particularly that uh, rebuttable presumption of employment that I mentioned is targeted at the types of companies you were alluding to in sort of ride hailing and, and food delivery. Um, because if you look at the criteria that the commission sets out in terms of when a platform is considered to be kind of controlling their workers and where therefore their workers should be considered employees, the types of things they're talking about, again, control over pricing, you know, requiring them to wear certain outfits or, or, or so on are really most applicable to that kind of particular part of the gig economy. Um, but if you look at the other areas of the proposal, which I talked about, so kind of algorithmic uh, transparency and sort of wider reporting by platforms, uh, that would apply to kind of pretty much all, all types of freelancing and gig economy platforms, not just kind of ride hailing and food delivery. Um, so they would all need to be giving more information to their, to their freelancers on, you know, how they're using algorithms to make decisions about them and so on. So it's kind of a, a, a mixture of things. So it's interesting you say that then. Sounds to me like the crunch of the proposals around misclassification are very much targeted at the usual suspects. Um, and you can see this potentially being a bit of a political sell from the Commission and the Parliament uh, ahead of the next European elections, that this is a particular prominent issue that they've they've addressed. However, the algorithmic transparency proposals does seem to have potentially wider applications outside of the gig economy, and there may be uh, unforeseen consequences of that uh, once the directive uh, is ultimately implemented. So, Franck, we've we've talked about the what, we've talked about the who, but let's get into the politics. We've discussed uh, between ourselves on separate occasions that on employment law, it's really EU national governments who sit in the council who rule the roost. Uh, they are generally sceptical about EU-level initiatives, and they jealously guard their own employment models, which vary quite considerably between different EU countries. Can you just tell, talk a little bit about this? I mean, will the national governments in the council be more open to this sort of proposal because it targets unpopular companies like Uber? Or are we going to re see a repeat of previous EU employment initiatives, which were um, dragged down and ended up in a very attritional process uh, in the council? Indeed, Conan, actually, we, we need to learn lessons from the past. If you, if you look at a previous proposal from the Commission during the last mandate, uh, namely the, the Transparent and Predictable Working Condition Directive, the most, the most contentious issue in the, in the Council between member states was the EU definition of worker. So what was at that time the position of member states? They just say no, they were against this EU-wide definition of worker. For a different reason. For example, the Germans believe that this definition could jeopardize their constitution law. If you look at the Nordics, they just want to protect their collective bargaining model. So why is the main conclusion from that? This means that employment policy is very much a national competence and it will remain the case. This tension between more or less European employment policy will also play out in the negotiation on, on the platform work directive. On your second question on the impact 
of this of this dynamics. I, I don't have a crystal ball, but it's obvious that the proposal isn't likely to remain intact. On average, it's often said that 80% of the proposal will stay the same, so which means that 20% uh, will be will be amended, one out of one out of five. So it's quite a lot, which means that there is still room for businesses to influence uh, in the coming weeks and months the outcome of, of the legislative process. Thanks, Franck. Max, let's pick up on some of the points that that Franck's talked about there. There's there's this interesting interplay between national and EU-level competences. I suspect this is confusing for some of our listeners. I confess, uh, particularly when hearing uh, about this rebuttable rebuttable presumption of employment, uh, I find it a little bit confusing in understanding how that's going to interact with national law. Can you just give an idea for us at a high level about how these new EU rules would work when there is that variety that Franck has just spoken to in different EU countries at the national level? So I think first point to make is that, you know, the commission obviously, uh, as, as Frank was pointing out, kind of, you know, recognises that there, is, there are a lot of national differences in how, in how countries uh, approach employment policy. Uh, and so I think there are a couple of features of the proposal which uh, kind of demonstrate the commission's recognition of the need for flexibility. So, I mean, to start with, this is a directive rather than a regulation, which uh, in kind of EU legal terms, essentially means that member states will have a degree of discretion in how they implement this, whereas a, a regulation would just sort of automatically apply in individual countries. A, a directive needs to be applied uh, in national legislation, uh, and there's kind of room for countries to, to an extent, uh, take their own approach to that. Um, the proposal itself kind of talks quite a lot about the, the, the primacy and the importance of national employment law and the need for things like the rebuttable presumption to Kind of align with with those with those laws and those definitions of employment, uh, and there's also a kind of curious mention in the proposal about the fact that member states, if they wish, can actually implement the directive uh, by working together with with social partners, which which in EU lingo essentially refers to uh, kind of trade unions and big uh, employer confederations. Um, so the EU sort of saying, well, you know, if you find a way to kind of make this work with your existing relationships with those organizations, which, for example, in Scandinavia are kind of a quite prominent way of dealing with employment issues, then we'll kind of count that as valid. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of flexibility there. And again, it's a kind of reflection of the fact that employment policy is typically a kind of jealously guarded national prerogative. Um, but having said all of that, you know, particularly when it comes to the rebuttable presumption idea, this is a big kind of intervention into national employment law. Uh, and, you know, the commission is kind of setting out quite specific criteria, which it thinks should apply across all countries that determine an employment relationship. Um, and so I think, you know, it's quite difficult to see how that's going to be kind of easily juxtaposed with the fact that lots of different countries have different ways of defining an employment relationship and the boundary between employment and self-employment. So I suspect that will be, you know, quite a big theme, both during the, the negotiations on the file and also when it comes to being uh, implemented. Thanks, Max. I mean, that adds a, a certain level of clarity to what we're talking about here. But I, I can't quite move on from a sense of deja vu here. Um, we've talked to uh, businesses a lot about California's AB5. And a lot of what you're saying here, and certainly what you said earlier, does seem to imply that in some ways this might end up being the European 
uh, version of this. I mean, am I correct or am I going totally down uh, the wrong line on this? No, I mean, there certainly are a lot of parallels between between AB5 in California and what the EU is trying to do here. And, you know, California was kind of one of the first uh, kind of jurisdictions in the world to really make a, a serious attempt to regulate this. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, both initiatives are uh, an attempt by policymakers to respond to these concerns I've talked about, about, uh, you know, potential exploitation in the gig economy and, and bogus self-employment and so on. Um, and where they where they have most in common is that they both, um, you know, set out criteria which determine when someone is an employee and when someone uh, is self-employed. Um, but there are some important differences as well. So AB5 in California is quite a lot wider than what the EU is proposing. So whereas the EU is talking just about digital labor platforms, uh, AB5 applies to kind of all, all employment relationships, not just not just digital ones. Uh, and it also has kind of wider criteria for determining when there's an employment relationship. Um, you know, for example, that uh, a, a gig worker um, to be considered an, uh, self-employed can't be sort of working on a task that is kind of the part of the core business of, of the employer that they're working for. So that's quite a lot wider. Um, also, you know, under AB5, there's basically automatic reclassification of an individual worker if they kind of fall on either side of this criteria. Whereas the EU, as I kind of mentioned, is going for a you know a slightly softer approach with this idea of a, a rebuttable presumption, which even when it sort of kicks in, requires uh, a bit more kind of action on behalf of of platform workers to kind of benefit from that presumption, and it also gives kind of stronger rights to platforms to kind of push back you know uh, the rebuttable aspect through providing kind of evidence that actually these workers are not employees. Um, and I think sort of another point to to raise with AB5 is it, you know, it's potentially quite instructive when we're trying to understand uh, what the kind of legislative process will be like with the platform workers directive. You know, AB5 has been very controversial in California. Um, It ended up capturing quite a few sort of independent workers that the kind of Californian government wasn't really trying to capture. And so they had to make uh, kind of legislative changes to, to exempt some of those. So for example, you know, people like graphic designers and freelance writers were being captured because they were sort of doing too much work for a particular employer. Uh, And then there was also, uh, as as some of our listeners may be aware, quite a big campaign by ride-hailing companies, particularly Uber and and Lyft, to push back on AB5 and essentially get their drivers exempted uh, from being recategorized as employees, something they were actually successful with. Uh, They kind of um, put something on a, on a kind of voting ballot in California during an election and were able to convince voters to, to get behind them. So now, now you know, uh, ride-hailing drivers in California are not covered by AB5 and Uber essentially, Uber and Lyft and, and others kind of gave them some extra, you know, protections and health insurance and things like that to try and kind of soften the blow. Um, and so we may see similar things like that in Brussels already, sort of ride-hailing companies have been pushing back on the proposal and particularly the rebuttable presumption of employment. So they may try to sort of win over legislators to, to something similar to what they achieved in, in, in California. Um, but I think without a doubt, it's going to be a, a contentious process. Thanks, Max. So it sounds to me then that it's not the same thing. And the key difference there is that there is this wider net that was the case in AB5 that doesn't exist for the Platform Workers Directive. So it's a much narrower group of companies that are going to be impacted by this, which in turn obviously then means uh, there's a smaller group of companies who will then look to try and pressure the European Parliament and the Council in order to overturn some of the provisions that the Commission has 
uh, put in there. Uh, and given the, the political reputation uh, of some of these companies, I think that's going to be quite a heavy lift uh, for them. And I wouldn't be too surprised if MEPs in particular actually wanted to go further than what uh, the Commission uh, has proposed. So, Franck, let's just quickly uh, go back to you. Um, we've just talked there about MEPs in the Parliament. Um, we're going to move on to the French presidency, but I want to ask about them very specifically on this point. I understood, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that this is not a major priority for the pre- French presidency. Uh, is that the case? And can you explain to listeners uh, why that is? Yeah, it is not indeed, actually. For, for the French government, uh, social dialogue is seen as the most effective solution to, to address this issue around platform workers, and in particular, Uber drivers and daily, delivery riders. If you, if you, if you listen to, the, to Macron's speech in the parliament today, he said there is a need to ensure upward convergence on platform workers. So it's, it's a dip, diplomatic way to say that the commission proposal should not interfere with national law. But the context is important in France. You have the presidential election in a, in a couple of months, and election politics are, are, are likely to play out in this debate at EU level. You have to look at the public sentiment in France about uh, uh, Uber drivers and delivery uh, riders. For example, myself, I was quite happy during the pandemic to be able to order food, my favorite Thai food uh, on, on Uber Eats, for example, because just the restaurants were closed. So everyone has done it. These workers were really in the front line during the, the crisis. And there are also some public, rising public concern over their pre- precarious working conditions. So the COVID has really increased exposure to this issue in France. And also in France, you, you have, you have the, this widespread sentiment against big US multinationals and as you, as you know, uh, the main um, platform in this field are from the US. So don't forget, for example, that France was a country where some former activists attack and burn a McDonald's restaurant. So there is this public sentiment that is quite hostile to uh, US tech firms. So there is clear public concern a political space that need to, 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 to be owned. And you have already some parties who, who own this political space, uh, namely uh, France Insoumise, the party from Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is candidate for the presidential election from the far left. And his, his political supporter, for example, uh, Leila Chaibi, who is MEP from the France Insoumise, she will use the EU debate on the platform directive to criticize the, the lack of formation of the French government at national level. Thanks, Franck. So it's a combination of different factors there, some of it to do with jealously guarded national competences, but others to do with the politics and the, the policy that the Macron administration has taken in France. But also just a very practical point, um, we're at the very start of this legislative process, uh, there's no hope that the French presidency can finalise uh, the negotiations on this particular file. So it will uh, be the Czechs who come after the French and other presidencies next year uh, who will have an opportunity to drive that forward. But let's um, let's not wander onto the Czechs. Let's keep on uh, the French presidency 
for now. Um, Franck, as I said at the start of the podcast, it's a very unusual presidency. Uh, it's not often we get one of the big two member states, France and Germany, in the hot seat. Uh, but it's also really not very often that one of those big two have the presidency at the same time as having a national election. So can you just expand on that? Will the French government be able to achieve very much um, or will they not be too distracted by domestic politics to properly invest in EU policy making? Actually, t- timing, timing is key here. The, the presidential election will take place in April and Macron and his minister will be on the campaign trail in March. So this will front load the presidency. They will have, on average, three months to deliver on, the, on their priorities. And on your question, what will, how it will affect uh, the ability of, of France to deliver on the priorities, there, there, there are two ways to consider it. Either we consider that French presidency will really shape the presidential election, or the other way around, that the presidential election will shape the French presidency. Actually, actually it will, it's likely to be both. Macron will, will use the presidency to, to reactivate this, this divide between pro-Europe parties. So a good example of pro-Europe parties, obviously, is Macron party, and anti-Europe parties, such as Le Pen or other uh, um, parties from the, the the far left or the far right. So <clears throat> Macron is really uh, keen to to polarize polarize the debates. And a good example was this controversy over the EU flag at the Arc de Triomphe. At the same time, the pre- the French presidency will will not will try to not open new front for op- opposition parties. They will try to avoid two contentious issues uh, that could affect the presidential campaign. A good example is trade. Macron will not prioritize the conclusion of any uh, free trade agreement during the presidency just because uh, French voters don't don't like them. Thanks, Franck. I mean, that's clear. I mean, so I suppose what we're looking at is there's a greater onus to get stuff done in the first half of the French presidency, which I suppose in turn puts pressure on the European Parliament negotiators as well as the Commission in order to facilitate deals being made between now and the end of March. So let's move on to the digital agenda. Where on the digital agenda do we expect the French to prioritise in the next three months? So Macron's top priorities are clear. It's tech sovereignty, and big tech regulation. So what does this mean uh, in terms of concrete uh, policy proposal? The, the French want to, to reach an agreement on the DMA and the DSA, so the Digital Market Act and the Digital Services Act, but also they want to secure a deal on the Network and Information Security Directive 2.0. I'm going to start with the NIS, the Network and Information Security Directive, because in a sense, it's linked to the tech Macron tech sovereignty agenda. We, we all know that cyber security is part of the policy toolbox to ensure tech sovereignty, which means basically reducing dependency on, on foreign tech suppliers, like namely Chinese and, and, and US suppliers. On, on, on this issue, we have, we have all in mind 5G. 
on 5G cybersecurity policy was used as a non-tariff barrier just to reduce dependency on Huawei. So this revision of uh, NIS will, will this political dynamics will play in, will play out into the, the revision of the NIS directive. On big tech regulation, the digital French digital minister Cédric O is really determined to secure deal on the DMA on the Digital Market Act. Is determined to succeed. He even planned to, to, to attend all trialogue meetings, so the uh, meetings between the different institutions that will negotiate uh, the final agreement, which is actually quite unusual for a minister to, to um, attend all, all this, all this meeting. So the question is why, why Cedrico is investing so much political capital in it? Actually, he has also his own political agenda. He wants he want to please his political, his political sponsor, Emmanuel Macron. And if Macron is re-elected, there will be a new government. And of course, uh, Cedrico wants to be promoted and have a more prominent portfolio. That's why uh, he really needs to deliver on the DMA. Thanks, Franck. Um, it's interesting there, the, the resonance of uh, US tech policy and US tech companies, particularly in France. It's something that's come up in both of your answers on Platform Workers Directive, but now on the Digital Markets Act. Uh, I think I would, in some other countries, it would be unlikely to be quite so political on a domestic level. Um, putting that to one side, um, so Max, Franck has laid out what the ambition is. We've got Cedric O marching to you know to in the charge to ensure that every trialogue is as productive as possible whether his attendance being there will will secure that i don't know um so they're really investing in this i mean given how complicated negotiations can be and how long they can sometimes take is that realistic i mean the mood music has been pretty good so far hasn't it (laughs) Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, whether it's realistic, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's certainly an ambitious goal, um, but I, I think I wouldn't want to rule them, rule rule it out entirely that they'll be able to kind of achieve what they want to do. Um, so when it comes to the, the DMA, the French presidency have expressed a desire uh, to reach an agreement between the kind of institutions, so with the Commission and the Parliament, uh, by the end of March, which is obviously kind of very quick timeline for a trilogue. Um, but I think, you know, there are a lot of kind of factors, uh, sort of behind that, that will help support that. Um, I think, you know, the first one is generally, there's a large degree of consensus, you know, both, uh, in the parliament and in, uh, among member states, uh, behind the objectives of the DMA, which, which, you know, is, is essentially about kind of reigning in the market power of big tech platforms and kind of helping support challenger firms, uh, trying to enter those markets. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, we're generally talking about American platforms, given kind of, you know, who, who most of the big tech companies are. Um, and, there's, and there's also a lot of consensus on the need to kind of move quickly with the proposal to, to sort of um, start addressing those harmful market practices quickly. Um, and if you look at, for example, you know, the Digital Services Act, um, the DMA has been kind of less, less controversial than that, it sort of moved faster through the legislative process in the parliament uh, and the council 
Uh, I think probably the main reason for that is, you know, the, the DMA is focusing more on kind of economic practices where there's more agreement, whereas the DSA is sort of getting into thornier territory around uh, sort of what kind of content online is is, is appropriate and, or, or harmful uh, and kind of questions of, of free speech and, you know, uh, how algorithms operate. Um, so I think all of that will kind of help reach an agreement quickly. Um, there is, there is, you know, having said that, there is still, still some divergence uh, between the Parliament and the Council on the DMA. Uh, I think most of that will be relatively easy to resolve. So it comes to quite kind of technical questions of the specific obligations that gatekeeper platforms will have to follow, uh, where Parliament kind of wants to basically beef up, beef up a number of those uh, questions around kind of which exact services will be in scope of being labeled uh, kind of gatekeeper platform. Uh, how, you know, timelines for enforcement and things like that, again, which I think are mostly technical questions that can be uh, resolved. Um, I think if it, if the timeline is to kind of fall back beyond that March uh, ambition, uh, I think it will be down to a, you know, a couple of specific issues, uh, which will maybe a bit more, maybe a bit more difficult to resolve. Um, probably the most important of those is the question of thresholds. Uh, so kind of you know, when in terms of turnover and market share, will a platform be considered a gatekeeper? Uh, the parliament wants to kind of raise the thresholds in comparison to the commission's original proposal to capture a kind of smaller number of, of largely American platforms, uh, whereas the commission and council are kind of sticking behind the original threshold. So I think that, you know, that was controversial in the in the debates, particularly in the parliament, and I think is likely to be a, a, an issue during the negotiations. Um, and there are a couple of other areas where, for example, the parliament wants to limit targeted advertising uh, when it comes to kind of minors, where, whereas kind of member states have been more reluctant to kind of intervene uh, in platforms business models in that particular area. Uh, and also the parliament is, is sort of has been a lot more aggressive when it comes to fines. They want to raise the fine, the maximum fine that a gatekeeper would have to pay from, from 10% of their uh, turnover to 20%, which is a big increase. And again, an area where kind of member states and the commission might might bulk a little bit, um, but I think having having said all of that, I think we should expect rapid progress. If not if not by March, then I think quite likely by the end of the French presidency. Thanks, Max. I mean, I, I've always been struck from the time that I worked in the Parliament just how the negotiations would feel this extra intensity as you got towards the end of a presidency. Uh, it's slightly illogical that all the institutions would bind themselves to this, but it, it is the it is the case. Um, given that uh, we have the you know, the personal investment from the French minister, we have an important election uh, where Macron losing to a Le Pen type figure would be utterly disastrous. Uh, you could you could certainly see uh, the EP and the Commission and other EU national governments in the council trying to do uh, President Macron and Cedric O a bit of a favour here to give them something they can uh, wave around as a victory. So um, talking about President uh, Macron, uh, Franck, I, I, I've seen him uh, publicly uh, talking about online platforms, uh, how they are failing on issues like disinformation and is worried about their use of algorithms. Um, you talked a little bit about the Digital Services Act earlier, but could you just how big a priority is that vis-a-vis -vis the Digital Markets Act? Do we take Macron's comments as a as a sign and a signal that this is going to be taken as seriously? 
Yes, for sure. Actually, the the this information will be will be in the spotlight uh, in France with the presidential election. If if you look at the French debate, uh, there are two very diverging views between Macron on one hand and Eric Zemmour, the far right candidate on the other hand, on how to organize the public debate online, how to organize like democracy online. We we all know that Facebook and other large social media platforms, they, they have become uh, uh, like new public spaces. And if you look at Macron, he, he really wants to fight what he called the, the diktat of emotion on this platform. In practice, this means fighting the spread of disinformation online. And if you look at the more, it has a completely opposite view. According to him, traditional media have lost their monopoly over news cannot longer dictate what is acceptable or not in the democratic debate. So there is this political, some, somehow philosophical divide in France between what Macron called reason and emotion. And even in, the, in the, his speech today in, to the European Parliament, Macron refers to the need to preserve the spirit of the, of the enlightenment. So it's, it's exactly this, it's reason other emotion. So how it will affect the DSC negotiation, it's an interesting question. Uh, according to me, the, the impact will be limited for the very good reason that the TSA due diligence obligation will only apply to illegal contents. But you have all the obligations, strict obligation that will uh, apply to the largest platform, the so-called very large platform, such as Facebook. They, they will need to assess their systemic risk, such as the manipulation of the services. So to some extent, they will need to address this issue of disinformation online. And if there is an agreement under the French presidency, which what we already said is quite challenging, Macron will claim it as a win and will for sure make a show of the agreement uh, in Paris. Thanks, Franck. So, I mean, chances possibly a little bit less than uh, was the case on the Digital Markets Act. I think, yeah, particularly as not only do you have those political dynamics you've described within France, but there are quite large issues remaining both between the European Parliament and the Council, but also between the different approaches that uh, national governments take to some of these issues, which uh, touch on very sensitive issues around freedom of expression so just to just to move on from the sort of implementation agenda which is what we've really been talking about today i think franck i'm slightly struck that the french presidency seems to be missing a big idea in the past you will hear ideas like a european cloud or a european netflix emanating out of paris i don't hear much at the moment is is that fair are they are they lacking uh, this time around so, yeah, you talk about ambition. The, the question is how we, we can measure ambition for, for, for the French presidency, but more broadly for any uh, presidency of the council. Conan, you, you know that I'm, I'm an engineer by training, so I, will, I would like to make a comparison with physics. In physics, uh, you have these um, calculations like power equals force times velocity. If you use the same reasoning in politics, you can say ambition equals influence times timing. 
And as, as we already uh, talk about, for France, the timing is quite bad, as we already discussed because of the election. If you look at the, the influence, France influence at EU level is, is quite big. It's maybe at an unprecedented, uh, unprecedented level right now for uh, different reasons. First, you have like um, President von der Leyen, but also um, um, other commissioners who, who own their position due to, to Macron. So they, they, want, they will be keen to, to please their political sponsor. We know that Thierry Breton, the French commissioner, has, has become a major force also in the European Commission. So French influence at EU level is big. But if you make the calculation, the timing is bad, French influence is big, but which means that the result will be, for ambition, will be average. So what I mean is that the French don't have, don't have, don't have really the means to be overly ambitious, including on, on digital aspects. Thanks, Franck. I think you're the first uh, podcaster to bring physical equations into the Top in Tech podcast, which is probably the sort of uh, scientific approach we should take to policy challenges in the tech sector a little bit more broadly. Um, Max, let's just wrap up here. Um, We've talked a lot in the past about the trade and tech council between the US and the EU. We know it nearly got cancelled at the end of last year after uh, Paris was agitated about the fallout from the AUKUS uh, submarine deal and uh, the alliance between the UK, Australia, and the US. Uh, has Paris moved on, or can we see much progress on the TTC uh, in the coming months? Or you know, are they a bit a bit of an irrelevance in this discussion? I think Paris has has moved on from the the AUKUS uh, debacle. Um, you know, President Biden and Macron met after that uh, last year and sort of publicly, uh, you know, said they've sort of they'd sort of gotten over it. Uh, and you know, the two countries have been kind of working closely together on on a bunch of issues since then. Probably most notably at the moment on on the kind of Russia Ukraine crisis. Um, but I think having said that, when we when we look at the Trade and Technology Council, uh, it isn't something that the French presidency have prioritized. Um, you know, it gets a sole mention in their in their official program, and, and it isn't identified as a, as a kind of key priority. Uh, and, and I think, you know, probably the main reason for that sort of uh, touching on things that Franck has already mentioned is, uh, you know, they have a narrow window for their presidency, particularly with the election coming up. And so they'll want to focus on kind of high impact digital policy proposals like the DMA and the DSA, which will have kind of direct impact in Europe, rather than the TC, TTC, which is you know, quite a long winded process. Uh, that will take a while to produce results, and and those results themselves will not necessarily be that spectacular. Um, will be more about kind of you know cooperation and information sharing rather than kind of regulating the tech sector, which is where sort of Paris really wants to focus. Um, and then you know also I think another factor is the kind of French emphasis on on tech sovereignty and strategic autonomy, which puts a kind of natural limit to an extent on their on their desire to fully align with the U.S. on on tech regulation. Um, you know, I th- having said that, uh, you know, France will be aware of the need for, for a degree of kind of U.S. buy-in on, on big proposals like the DMA and the DSA, which will put a lot of new kind of requirements on, on largely U.S. tech platforms. Uh, and so they'll, they'll, they'll see the TTC as a means for kind of keeping open channel, channels of communication with the U.S. and getting some buy-in for that. Um, 
So, you know, I think it's entirely plausible that we'll have another meeting of the TTC during the French presidency, which is sort of uh, when the next one was was penciled in, but but I wouldn't expect too much from it. Thanks, Max. So not to expect too much, but that's not necessarily uh, because of AUKUS, rather the institutional uh, dynamics around uh, the TTC and uh, French influence over that. We'll conclude there. Um, so thanks to all our listeners. Uh, as always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to the Platform Workers Directive or the agenda of the French presidency, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find uh, the contact details for Franck and Max uh, and our sectoral teams on the GC website. You can find that at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you very much for joining. Bye-bye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.